Enough about that. Let's do something useful. Exodus 27. All right, we are continuing our walk through the worship of Israel. We've seen the Ark of the Covenant. We have seen the tabernacle that surrounds it, but we are channeling our inner, our inner 90s late night infomercial. But wait, there's more. There's an entire courtyard, an altar for sacrifice, and a little light of theirs. And yes, if you didn't have the song in your head, then shame on you. You're supposed to be singing it the rest of the morning. You are welcome. Now, why do these things all exist? They exist because they are teaching about God and have been utilized throughout the generations of Israel to point back to him. Our job is to look at these things now, figure out how they point us to God then, and how that points us to God now. Does that make sense? That's the goal. How did that thing point us to God then if we were there? And now that we're not there, but we're here, because if you're there, we've got a problem. But now that we're here, how does it point us to God? (laughs) Are you confused? Good, then I've done my job. (laughs) And the most important thing we could do is dive into Exodus 27. Now, we will uh, continue the, the, uh, the pattern we have started for this. Rather than read all 27 verses and do the math and all of that again, we'll just read it one time as we go through it and read through it all that way. Sound good? All right. Verse 1, you shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. So somewhere in the ballpark of seven and a half by seven and a half by four and a half. So it's not a massive table, but that's a good sized table, right? I mean, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't walk into, you know, like the Biltmore Estate or something and be like, that's a big table, but it's, it's a good size. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make its pail for removing its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make for it a grating and of network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it beneath under the ledge of the altar so that the net will reach halfway up the altar. Okay. I covered all that in one bunch because we have no earthly idea why this thing has horns. Like, I, 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 I read that and I'm like, why does it have horns? Check the little Bible study notes. Nothing in there about the horns. Read the commentary book. The guy even admits, we have no idea why it has horns. Here's three explanations as to why they might have horns. None of them make any sense. So you know what? I have no idea why the thing has horns. I do know, though, why it has a grate. Because that would make the fire uh, more efficient. It would allow for airflow so that you would have a clean fire. The other reason why you're... This is an easy one. You ready? Why would you take a wooden table that you're going to have fire on and coat it in bronze? (laughs) that one makes sense like i know why it's coated in bronze because we've got to protect the wood it would also again make the fire efficient it would uh, reflect the heat keep the energy in one place the grate again allows for airflow as well as easy cleanup so this does sound like a bad infomercial increased airflow easy cleanup even this shovel at the bottom now exactly 29.95 and if you'd pay never mind stop i'm gonna stop right now before billy mays rises up out of the grave and smacks me now A better question that we should ask because we can answer it. Sometimes the best question is the one we can actually answer. Why is there a burnt offering? Hmm? 
I mean, everything else we kind of made sense, right? We have the altar for God's seat. We have the tent so that we can segregate. But why do we need to all offer this burnt offering and especially do it outside of the Holy of Holies? The answer is it's a continual sin offering, Numbers 28. You shall say to them, this is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, one year old without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. You shall offer the one lamb in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. This is part of that expansion. We understand the Passover sacrifice. We go once a year and we engage in that. We understand the uh, tabernacles festival. We go once a year and we engage in that. We do the same thing. It just went right out of my head. Um, Pentecost, Feast of Weeks. We understand that. These are, these are multiple, times, or multiple times during the year, but we go annually. What we forget, though, is that every single day, in the morning and in the evening, the priest is offering sacrifice on behalf of the people day in and day out, as a constant reminder of the need for God's redemption, the need for God's grace, and the sin that is ever before the people. Why is God doing this? Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands daily, ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, talking about Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, saying... This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. And he then says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is key in understanding the point that Hebrews is making and understanding the distinction between the work of Christ and the work of the priests day after day. This work by the priests is a reminder. I mean, every single day, twice a day, you have to make offering for your sin. You have to make offering for the people. Every single day while you're living your life and you're, you're offering tithes for the work of the tabernacle, you're offering later on in Israel tithes for the work of the temple, you're giving gifts out of the uh, produce of your garden. There's a sacrifice being offered for you and your family every single day. What is that a reminder of? Is that a reminder of salvation? Not really. It's a reminder of sin. It's a reminder of judgment. But Christ's work is once for all. This is what separates the freedom of Christ from the bondage of the law. The law is a reminder that you are under sin, that you are under judgment apart from the grace and mercy of God. The work of Christ is a reminder that you are free from sin, free from judgment because of the grace and mercy of God. Of God. This is why, Christian, we remind you on a regular basis that do we look at sin? Yes, because we kill it, right? We seek to get rid of it, root it out of every avenue of our life. But we do that how? By remembering that for that too, Christ died. By remembering that it is his work that covers and makes us clean. Don't forget that part. Christ's work covers and makes us clean. You don't wake up tomorrow and be like, I cannot believe where I am. Oh, now I'm dirty again. In Christ, you are clean. 
Your righteousness is not yours. It has been imputed from Christ. It has been given to you by God through the work of the Holy Spirit, credited to your account because Christ is righteous. It is in him that we stand, not in us. Because of that, we are able to root out sin, to try to kill it, as I joke, to kill it, kill it with fire. Good, good use today since we have burnt offerings we're discussing. I can do that not because I need to be clean, but because in Christ I am clean. Where did that come from? Sorry, all of a sudden I could see the mouse on the screen. That, that's new. <laughs> the computer's doing something weird. There's no telling. <laughs> Cameron's in the background. I didn't do it. I have no idea why. Now, this is true, yeah. Watch out. The, the, the AI is listening. They're, they're talking to the CIA. They're going to tell them what we said next. Repent. There you go. <laughs> Well, yeah, when the government is listening in, repent of your sins. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Let me take my tinfoil hat off for a second. Go put it over there. <laughs> there you go. Uh, this is why we make the distinction, though, in the world. And Sorry, I, I, I thought I was going to do sleeves today because it was nice and cool when I left the house, and now I'm sweating. So I'm sweating and my eyes hurt. It's a good day. This is the differentiation why I can say, why do the pagans continue on in their sin? And the answer is, because they're pagans. As I, as I told a, a Sunday school, well, technically she was a Wednesday night Awana teacher, but she's also a Sunday school teacher. She was trying, she asked me one day, and I know I've told you this before, but it makes sense. The, um, she's trying to figure out why the kids in the van ministry for the church. She's like, we bring these kids in from the community, and, and we instruct them, and we do all these wonderful things, and they, they just don't want to learn. And they don't want to behave, and they don't want to do any of this stuff. So, so let me get this straight. You brought a bunch of pagan kids into a church setting, and you're surprised that they're not acting like church kids. And she goes, well, yeah. I said, well, pagans act like pagans. But they're, I don't care if they're five. They're still pagan five-year-olds. Don't expect them to act like church kids. Teach them why you want them to act like that in the way that they get there. And it was like the light bulb went off. And she's like, so in other words, treat them like unbelievers. And when they do unbelieving things, you won't be shocked and appalled. You'll be expecting it and be ready with a response and a cure. That's the difference. Now, why is that true? Because they are still dead in their trespasses and sins. They are still blind to the powers and the prince of this world. You, Christian, in Christ have been awakened. You're not better. You've just been given a peek behind the curtain. You have seen that Oz, you know, is not the all-wonderful and powerful, and that he's just a dude. And you've seen that the sin of this world is not all-consuming. It's only all-consuming without Christ. And that in Christ, I am no longer worried about it because I have righteousness from on high. I have goodness and receive mercy. Therefore, when that temptation comes, I can put it aside and walk in the newness of life. That's the difference between their offering and the offering. That's the difference between, the, uh, between a priest in Israel and the priest most high who is Christ. So let's continue. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Its poles shall be inserted into the ring so that the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with planks as it was shown to you in the mountain, so they shall make it. Again, notice what we're prioritizing. Part of the design and construction is so that we can move it. Because while a seven and a half by seven and a half by four and a half table is not massive, do you want to pick it up? That sounds like one of those things where you're like, I want a handle right here. Like, hang on. What was our last count? How many times have we moved? 
11 times. You and I have been, what year is it? 2021? We've married 18 years and we have moved 11 times. Don't go into ministry, kids. <laughs> Do you know how many times I've picked up the same dresser and gone, I want a handle right here? <laughs> because there isn't one, and when you go to pick it up, it's, there's nowhere to grab it. And, and I can't tell how many times another adult and I have picked up the same piece of furniture and gone, you know, this is not heavy. There's just nowhere to hold it. And then you're walking through a door where you're doing this number. It's a nightmare. <laughs> I've threatened you. <laughs> no, I've just learned when I rent the U-Haul, I rent the, um, the hand truck with the straps on it. Like when we moved up here, I moved every piece of furniture by myself because I walked up, put the hand truck underneath it, ran the strap, tilt and walk. <laughs> I felt so smart for 10 bucks. It was brilliant. But anyway, they don't have that for this table and this thing's going to be awkward and there was fire in it and it's dirty. You know what we should do? We should put a handle. And so they're going to put the poles and we can put the poles in. When means when it's time for Israel to move, we do what? Now, four guys are carrying this table, and we can do this easily. Why? Because Israel is being taught about the power and the presence of God. Go back to Deuteronomy 31. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you, nor forsake you. How does Israel know this? Because as this whole time they've been wondering what's been going on, what part of God's worship has been left behind? None of it. What part of his offering has had to be reconstructed? None of it. The work is good. The worship is good because God is good. And that's the lesson that's being taught to these people. Hence, as silly as it sounds, many times I've gone, you know, just go to the hardware store and put a handle in the back of the dresser. No, I don't do that. I just, you know, do this number. God said, you put a pole right there so that four adult men can go. And here we go. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, there shall be hangings for the court of fine twisted linen, 100 cubits long for one side, and its pillars shall be 20, and their socket and their 20 sockets of bronze, the hooks of the pillars, and their bands shall be of silver. Real quick, this would end up being about 150 by 75, somewhere in the ballpark of 11,000-ish square feet. Um... I, didn't, I never got my measuring tape out. Yeah, it's, I was going to say, it's pro, uh, I know, uh, when we had the insurance adjustment, they said the entire building, gym, kitchen, and everything was 20,000 square feet. So you're talking about a little over half this building's entirety, which would probably be somewhere in the ballpark of the amount of space of this room, give or take. Not the, not the right dimensions, but as far as overall space, this would be about it. That's a lot. It's a lot, considering what they're going to use it for. But. Likewise, for the north side in length, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long and its 20 pillars with their 20 sockets of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. For the width of the cord on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The width of the cord on the east side shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And for the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. So all of that to say, they put a little decorations up. Now, why? Why do, why do, why do we care? 
Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And you go, okay, yeah, I I know that part, but what does that have to do with decorating? Well, we recognize that God made everything, therefore he owns everything. But you know what we fail to recognize oftentimes? How cool is everything? And I'm, I'm serious. How many times have you walked out of your house on a fall evening and gone, man, look at that sunset? Or how many times have you walked outside in the morning because you had to get up early that day and gone, man, it's a beautiful sunrise today? Or sat in vacation because you went somewhere cool and you're having your cup of coffee going, look at that view. Whether it's the ocean or the mountains or if you've gone out west and you got away from the lights and all of a sudden you realize just how many stars in the sky are actually up there. Or when science decides to launch another telescope and then they find this thing that no human being has ever laid eyes on before and you recognize that from the moment of creation, God has enjoyed that. Or the creatures at the depths of the sea or the, the hollows of the mountains, wherever it is that you may go, that God has made all of that. Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? Or Psalm 104, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourselves with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind, and he makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. God's tabernacle should be beautiful because God's work is beautiful and our worship is supposed to be a reflection of God, who he is and what he does. And so often when I say that, I know what my temptation is, which means it's probably somewhat your temptation. Anytime I say who God is and what he has done, you know what we automatically think of? Salvation. What has he done? He saved us. And and I'm I'm not telling you he hasn't. But what God does is so much more than just that. And our worship should be reflective of so much more than just that. That's what Israel is learning here. How do we worship God? Again, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. When they built old cathedrals, they weren't just trying to make sure the peasants stayed poor by taxing all of their money so they could build massive cathedrals. Massive cathedrals were meant to teach things. They were, they were meant to have huge doors so that you didn't just walk up to the church, grab the door, open it, and go in. Because anybody can do that. Does anybody just get to go before the court of God? No. Therefore, the door needs to weigh something. We want you to feel the weight of what you are doing and what you are about to enter into. That's why the ceilings were all the way up there. We do it because, well, we have a steel frame. Well, we didn't do it, but Kishwaukee Baptist Church did it. Why? Because they had a steel frame, and that's where you put the ceiling, because it was easier to do that than put the drop ceiling in and change all your acoustics and ruin everything. They did it because, no, we want you to walk in and be like, wow, this is big, and this is heavy, and those stones and the boulders and the things that are in the ceiling, and look at the craftsmanship of the walls, and look at the windows, and, and look at the beautiful artwork. That's what it was meant to do. It was meant to communicate how big and beautiful 
God and his work truly are. That comes out of understanding Israel's worship. Comes out of the lessons directly taught by God on the mountain. The closest thing we can come up to. I mean, think about if you're Israel. I, I never, I didn't change. I think I finally did change the picture on the bulletin. I don't think of those things. But for a while, yeah, I did. I put the tabernacle, which that should give you a good little, that I don't know exactly how accurate the colors are. Google images help me out there. But before that, if you, if you keep your bulletins at home, go back and look. It was just the mountain with the glory of the Lord shining. And I left that there on purpose because that's where Israel was. They're at the foot of the mountain and the glory of the Lord is shining. And I think we forget that. That while Moses is up the mountain doing all this and we are focusing on all the minutia and the details, if you're Israel in the camp, you are looking up the mountain and it's basically on fire. <laughs> because that's where God is. And that should have impact on how you live your life, what you think about, and what you do. And then when the instructions come down, that that glory, that power, that majesty that we have seen has told us how we should do this. Okay. It's not just willy-nilly. Again, we get bogged down in details because after a while it's like, okay, I get it. We're building a courtyard that's 150 by 75. So I understand that what's going to go on the north side is the thing that's going to go on the south side. Why does God make sure we know that? So that you don't think for a second that any of it, any of it is to be left to chance. But it is precise, and it is organized, and it is the worship of God. Now, I'd belabor that point because I have a very, very important question to ask you next. Christian? <laughs> Vern just got nervous. Uh-huh. You ready? It's like when you were in middle school and your friend walks up to you because you know there's, you don't see the other friend who's on the ground behind you and you're about to get pushed, aren't you? Yeah, there you go. When does your worship stop? <laughs> I point that out because we have a bad habit as Christians, because we have a bad habit about as humans. We compartmentalize everything, not some things everything. And we have a tendency to think that Israel's worship is just about the tabernacle. It's just about when they go those three times a year. No, that worship is going on daily, all day, every day. It's meant to be taught that your worship is not just an offering. It's not a song. It's not an appearance. It's not a scripture reading. It's your life. It's who you are and what you do. This is part of worship. It is not just what worship is. This is an empowering for the worship that you'll do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whenever. Our lives are supposed to be offerings. John 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you, will, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Paul understood that lesson. Paul understood the application before John even wrote it, Romans 12. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living 
and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. The point was always supposed to be as you go. That's why Psalm 119 that we read this morning was so important. Where is the law written? Believer, where is that law written? On my heart, which means I carry the commandments and precepts everywhere so that when I am confronted with something that's a violation of the character and nature of God, I do what? I recognize it and I run the other way. And when I see a brother not recognize it, I sit back and go, can you believe they did that? The nerve of something. No, no, no. That's what we do in bad churches. (laughs) You've met that person. I've sat next to that person many times. No, we assume what? They don't know. I mean, that's, that's Isaiah, right? Do you not know? Have you not heard? This was, this was something, again, I, I, made a, I made a covenant with myself years ago. This was, I started kicking my own rear end about this. To put the best construction on things when it comes to believers. You know what that'll get you? You'll move 11 times in 18 years. <laughs> you assume the best out of people, and it's okay. Especially when they name the name of Christ. Because what's our default in this world? Let's be honest. What's your, what's your default? Do you trust them? No. That's why when I joked that, oh, the computer's acting up, the government's listening in, we all kind of went, because <laughs> hmm. <laughs> for a split second, you're going, no, no. Well, and everything you thought was crazy a year ago seems a little less crazy. That's why, you know, we joked with the whole time all of last year. I got, I got a laugh because we never see the police or the sheriff unless they're, you know, driving by real fast. But I got a laugh because I noticed it. It was Easter Sunday, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Memorial Day, Fourth of July weekend, Labor Day. Because we were here all last year. If you stayed home, that was okay. I didn't fuss at you. But we were here. Some Sundays we had, you know, 10, some, you know, 13. But on those holidays, sheriff's department was parked outside. <laughs> It's just kind of one of those, what are the odds that it's the holidays are the times when you're parked out? And again, do we want to think like that? No, but you start wondering after a while when you see the third, fourth holiday come around going, I wonder if there's something to that. And that's why when we started having lunch again, when we, when we had our first fellowship meal, that was the Sunday that the sheriff's deputy parked outside again. So you know what we did? We brought him leftovers. <laughs> And you know what he said? Awesome, you guys had lunch? Do that. We're trying to get people to get back together. This was like January. He's like, I wish people would get back together. And I'm like, we're not going to jail today. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) A little trepidation and worry. Because what's our default as humans, though? To not trust. To not be loving. To not extend the benefit of the doubt. Christian, we have to. We have to assume that the pagan just doesn't know any better because they're a pagan. And we have to assume that the Christian has fallen because they claim to be a Christian. And if you're a Christian, you obviously didn't want to be there. So how do I help you climb out? See the difference? Now I'm actually coming with words of comfort. Words of peace. Actions of love and understanding. What's changed? The heart of me. The attitude of me as I approached it. That's the war we fight in this world. That's why understanding that your worship is not a Sunday morning, but it is a life lived unto God is so important because it changes how you interact with the world around you. And Christian, 
we need to change the way the world is interacted with because my goodness, it's getting so awesome out there, isn't it? It's getting so much better day by day by day. You send your kids and your grandkids off without a care in the world, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Because you start looking at things and going, you're dealing with that at that age? You're going, I didn't know about that when I was that age. You know, I, I read news stories like, oh, they're having, you know, a, what school board approved sex education for kindergarten? And I'm going, kindergarten? What, what would sex ed in kindergarten even be? Isn't that when you learn cooties? <laughs> Why does the world do that? Because evil doesn't have a stop button. Evil doesn't know how to pause. Pagans act like pagans. And when pagans are confirmed in their sin, they go, well, why isn't everyone else standing where I'm standing? Come on, everybody. This is what Romans 1 is trying to explain to you. And the Christian mindset would be, oh, honey, no. Because that's not how we're supposed to be. Why? Because there is a God in heaven. Let me tell you who he is. Let me tell you about the beauty and the majesty that is him and the wonderful things that he has done and how this world was meant to be so much better. Now I am prepared to confront the darkness with light. Not by slinging mud at it, not by getting down and dirty in the midst of it, but by shining a light from on high. Because let's be honest, that little light of mine is only mine because it belonged to Christ first. Because if it was mine and it stayed mine, ugh, that'd be one ugly light. So, let's continue. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen of 20 cubits, of blue and purple and... Uh, blue and purple, and scarlet material, if I could read, we'd be all set, and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver, with four pillars for, with their four sockets. All the pillars around the court shall be furnished with silver bands, with their hooks of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, and the width 50 throughout, and the height 5 cubits of fine twisted linen, and their sockets of bronze. Now my voice wants to act up. Now, real quick... Something fun to cover. Did you notice in this tabernacle courtyard how many entrances slash exits there should be? Would the fire marshal approve this design? Why not? There's only one. That's a problem if you're a fire marshal. What is it teaching if you're God? John chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. That's where Thomas is all of us, right? Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. Know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus had already taught this earlier, Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gates, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. You saw this in the preaching of the apostles when uh, Peter gets, gets a chance to speak, Acts chapter 4, talking about Christ. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This is not new teaching in your Bible. This was shown all the way back here. Does the priest take the sacrifice, walk around to the side of the tent, pick up the flap, and crawl under? Why not? Well, one, that would be silly. It'd be undignified for a priest. He'd drag the lamb through the dirt. He'd get himself dusty, and he'd mess up all this lovely work that we have done. And it's just ridiculous on top. Instead, he goes in how? Goes in through the gate. Is there another gate that he can choose? No. Which means when we take this, and by the way, always remember this about the tabernacle. If, you're, if your Bible hasn't, doesn't have this in its study notes, it always faces east. Yeah. So when they're coming in, they're always coming in the same direction. Always, always, always. I can't. All right, you ready? Don't, don't write this down. I should tell you to stop recording. I often wonder, why do they end? Why the east? Why enter in from the east? And if you put a gun to my head and like, give me a spiritual reason why the gate is on the east. Because they were kicked out of the garden east of Eden. And we forever talk about living in a world east of Eden. And when you read your Bible, anybody that comes from the east or travels to the east, run, bad things are about to happen. So they're entering in. They're going back to the west. Again, don't quote me on that. Am I going to write a book about it? No, I probably should. I'd make more money. I'll have Vern help me do this one. <laughs> Again, the thoughts that keep me out of the really good schools. If, I, if you made me give you a spiritual answer, that would be it. Why there's only one gate is an easy one. You access God the way he tells you. Always remember our lesson. The bug in the jar will never understand the boy who put him there. Christian, we're the bug in the jar. We don't understand God unless God explains himself. Thanks be to God that he has. Therefore, we know who he is, what he has done, and what he calls us to. But it's not just what he calls us to, it's how he calls us to. You don't just live willy-nilly in the world. Believe me, I, I have often wondered, we talked about this when we went through this in men's Bible study. We went through Romans. We're, in first, we're doing First Samuel now. Before that, we were in Romans. And when you get to the end of Romans, Paul has this long list of people who are with him as he's composing this letter because he's dictating it. Um, oh, the name of the guy who's writing the letter just went right out of my hand. I think it's Tertius is writing the letter, but read Romans 16, it'll do you good. And it, it, it hit me when I got to the end of that as we were teaching through it that you, you'll notice in the early parts of Romans as Paul is teaching that he starts answering questions. So like he, he makes an explanation of something. And in the very next chap, chapter, he asks a question about what he was just teaching. And it hit me. All these guys standing around that are Jews and Gentiles and they're Persians, all these different people standing around. I wonder if Paul's dictating this letter and they're like, hey, Paul, question. <laughs> and they'd ask it again. Do I think that happened? I have no idea. Do I like to imagine it like that? Sure. Don't quote me on this. Because why? As you understand your life, you immediately have questions. And one of these pops up in Romans 6, because Paul gives this great exposition on the grace of God, starting in chapter 3, going all the way through chapter 4 and 5, in the mercy of God, how it was poured out on Abraham before the covenant, before the law was given, how God decreed him just from his grace and mercy alone. And so somebody asked the question, so shall we then go on sinning so that grace may abound? And the answer is, no! 
Have you lost your mind? Of course not. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this is supposed to work. That's part of the reason there's one gate. We go to God on God's terms. What are God's terms? We've covered this before. Who see who remembers? You get one word answer. What are God's terms? Repent, fancy word in battle would be surrender. What do you get to bring in? See, you're going to get a good lesson in surrender this week in the news. Just, just pay attention to what goes on in Afghanistan. You'll see what, merci- you'll see what merciless surrender looks like. Um, God's terms are not, well, you know, God, I would bring this pet sin over here, and I would like to bring in coveting over there and a little dash of adultery on the side. What do you think? That's a no. Okay. How about we get rid of the adultery? We'll keep the lying and the coveting. Is that that good? You think about it. Okay, that was a no too. All right. Yeah, no, no. No. What are the terms? All that sin stuff? Kill it? Kill it with fire. We let none of it pass. God's terms are surrender. And you come to him on his terms and his terms alone. This is why the world hates you, by the way. Because the world wants to say, well, yeah, you know what, Christian? You're so smart. See, you just have that whole Jesus understanding of God. But, you know, over in this part of the world, they have a Buddha understanding of God. And, you know, who are you to judge? I'm a Christian. That's who I am to judge. I'm a human being. That's who I am to judge. And I have the truth handed down from on high from God. The thing that actually proves and accomplishes. That's who I have. And real quick, this will never come up in conversation. But if they ever give you the elephant, just laugh. And what I mean by that is, this is one I've seen. I haven't seen it lately because I think the word's gotten out on it. Like, well, you know, religion is like people who are blindfolded trying to trying to describe an elephant and one person's got his tail and they think well well god is you know like a a skinny little long piece and he's got a puff on his tail and somebody else has got the leg and they're like well you know god is like this big heavy tree-like thing and then somebody else has got the trunk and he's like well god's like a squiggly snake you know the problem with the analogy they're all wrong it's not that all the religions are right it's that all the in that analogy all the religions are wrong because none of them are accurately describing what? An elephant. They're all describing a part of it, not the actual thing. It does, it's not a way to prove that all religions are right. It's a way that proves all religions are wrong, which in order to know that all religions are wrong, there would have to be someone who stands outside and says, it's an elephant. That's the front. That's the bottom. See, someone else has to have knowledge. You know that someone else always claims to be in the analogy? The atheist. It's always amazing how they're the smart ones. But anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. I just, since that popped into my brain, I figured you needed to know that one if you ever see that. I was like, if anybody, anybody asks you, if, can God make a rock so heavy he himself can't lift it? Laugh at them. Because the answer is no. Because God, who is infinitely strong, it is physically and logically impossible to make a finite thing, which is a rock, infinitely heavy. Because a finite thing must have a finite weight. Therefore, it is logically impl- impossible to make an infinitely heavy, finite thing, okay? It's, it's a stupid question. Tell them it's a stupid question and move on. <laughs> so, where were we? Oh, yeah. One way to God. Why? Because God has decreed there is one way, and you enter in on his terms. Why? Because of all the things we've already talked about. The mountains, the seas, 
the winds, the skies, the stars. He alone is powerful enough to create. He alone is powerful enough to uphold. He alone is the one who gets to dictate the terms for his people. Why are they his people? Because Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created. Not you, not anybody else, but God. I saw that one coming. And God alone. <laughs> so let's continue. All the utensils of the tabernacle used in all its service and in all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. We're actually going to pause there for a second. Because I don't want you to miss something. All right. Rewind in your mind. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it did. That's okay. So use the Wayback Machine. When we were at the Ark of the Covenant, what was everything made out of or covered in? Gold. Have you noticed as we've moved away, have we used any gold today? It's all been what? Bronze and silver. We are not good Yukon Corneliuses. We have, not, we have not kept the gold. We have now moved on. Although he would have peppermint instead of bronze, but that's neither here nor there. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, watch bad cartoons from the 50s. They will do you good. <laughs> Why have we gotten into bronze as we have moved away? Well, there's a lesson here. In the tabernacle, again, you can look at the little picture in your bulletin. It is probably not the scale. We have moved farther away. Are we in the direct presence of God if you are in the court of the tabernacle? No. That is reserved for the ark on the mercy seat, behind the curtain, under the tent. You, you know the drill. Behind the screen, inside the veil, you know. I feel like, I, I feel like there should be a song. You know, we've got to figure out how to set that to the tune of Gilligan's Island. I think that will work really well. Sit right back and we'll build an ark, a bark that's behind a curtain. Anyway, all right, I'm going to stop right now before I go down that. <laughs> this is what happens. Yeah, help me, help me, my mind is lost. I keep telling you guys, of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most. As we've moved away, the materials have become less valuable, which means they have become more common. Why? Because we are no longer in the presence of God, and we are in a more common area. Rewind to Psalm 24 that we read earlier. The earth is the Lord and all that contains the world and those in it. If you keep reading, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. How clean is your heart, Christian? See, that's the, the answer to that should drive you back to Christ. Because what cleans your heart? What purifies you? What washes your hands? And the answer is Christ and Christ alone. He is the one entrance point to God. This is, again, why I can laugh about the elephant analogy and things like that. What separates biblical Christianity? Christianity is defined by uh, biblical faithfulness from every other religion man has concocted. And yes, I'm saying that that way intentionally. The answer is your means of accessing God. Go to Eastern mysticism, where your Buddhism, your Hinduism, your Zoroastrianism, and all those things come out of Persia and Indian things. Like, you, you know what they all have in common for the most part? You doing something. You have to empty yourself. You have to obtain oneness with the Spirit. You have to become part of the great other. It's either pantheistic or panentheistic. I'll let you look up the difference and figure all that out. Go to other major world religions. What's your problem with Islam? You have to be perfect. On whose standard? Allah's standard on whose work? Yours. 
your work purifying your soul. And if you want to have some fun, actually, actually read a Quran and, and realize that you know when the faithful Muslim knows that he's going to make it into paradise? When he does. Because there's actually lessons and stories in the Hadith that talk about that you were this close, you were right there, and then Allah went, no, no, you're not good enough, and off to the fires you go. <laughs> you're like, ooh, but he's so merciful because it's based on, you know what? You and your work. What must you accomplish? You ever met an angry Mormon? No, I'm serious. You ever had the kids knock on your door and just be like, here, you want your book? They're typically very, very nice people. You know why? Because that's their definition of sin. Mormon's definition of sin is determined by your external action. They can hate you all they want as long as they don't act on it. In other words, my goodness is defined by how I act. Biblical Christianity defines your goodness on Christ. Because apart from Christ, you know what you are? <laughs> it's not good. Because I can act great all I want. This is part of the lesson. Jesus, Jesus teaches the parable. Goes to two sons and says, go do this. And the one goes, I don't like you. And goes off and does it. And the other one says, okay, dad, sure. And then doesn't go and does the work. Which one actually listened to his father? The one that actually did it. Because what happened? Did he react in anger? Yes. But what was the overriding, controlling thing? The love for the father and the obedience to the work. The one who lies to him, there's the evil one. The most evil person is not the one who yells at you. The most evil person is the one who can smile at you while plotting your demise. <laughs> that's, that's some wickedness right there. That's evil incarnate. Because what makes you good and bad is what comes out of the man, not what goes into the man. It's almost like there's a parable about that too. Because this is what's being taught. Your sin is inside of you. Your wickedness is not what you do. It's who you are. And what cleans that, Christian? Christ. What empowers your continuing cleansing? The Holy Spirit. What ensures that you will actually get to the end and not have the fear that the Muslim has? The promises of God, the work of Christ, and the continuing blessing work of the Holy Spirit. That Trinitarian accomplishment is what changes you from, I made it because I did it. No, you didn't. You made it because God did, in spite of you. That's part of the lesson here. As we move closer to God, we recognize that we are in a different place. That's why we go from bronze and, to bronze and silver to gold. Because that priest, once a year when he enters in, doesn't enter into something that he's seen every day. Because let's be honest. First rule, never live where you want to vacation. Because that time, like, go to the mountains, and you love the view, right? Now imagine you wake up to it every single day. Is it cool? Is it special? You think so now because you don't do it. Ten years from now, what's it going to be? Eh, it's my backyard. That's why, do you know what places on the planet have some of the highest suicide rates and alcohol and drug abuse rates? Vacation spots. Vacation spots. You know what state in the United States has the highest um, drug problem? Besides, no, it's worse than us. Think about it. Hawaii. Hawaii. It's miserable to live in a place where other people go on vacation. Because you don't care anymore. 
Oh, look at the water. Look at the mountains. Look at the palm trees. Shut up, lady. Take your snow cone. <laughs> you laugh. That's your world every day. It's not a beautiful ocean view. It's Tuesday. Because I don't care how beautiful you think it is, if it's your every day. Here, you want a real fun one? Um, in the 1700s, um, dock workers in Maine went on strike. You know what they were striking against? One of their first demands? They demanded that they only be fed lobster three times a week. Because we're sick of eating these stupid lobsters. $50 a pound, people. That was one of their demands. You're giving us lobster every single day, and we can't take it anymore. And you're sitting there looking at a menu going, I'm not ordering lobster. Look at the price of that. I would love to get it, but oh my goodness, who can afford this? That was part of their demand, because if you get it every day, you know what it isn't anymore? It isn't special. That's why the tabernacle isn't covered in gold everywhere, because when that priest enters into that holy of holies to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people, to place the blood upon the altar where God sits, he is doing a special and important work. And you know who better know it? He better know it. Because it matters. This is why I tell you to examine your sin and to run back to Christ every day. Because if you don't, you know what you start doing? You start getting complacent. Well, you know, Jesus loves me. I'm, I'm good. Jesus died for me. And for that too, Christ died. And, and everything just becomes common. Don't do that. Exactly. No. Routine is good for life. It's bad for spirit. It's terrible for spirit. But Christian, we're not routine. We have a Holy Spirit who is teaching, guiding, directing, empowering, uplifting, doing all of these things day in and day out. That's why understanding your life as worship is so important. That's the avenue and the power cord that enables you to actually live this every single day. This is the other reason why we look at fruit over a lifetime and why I tell you to look at fruit over a lifetime. Because if you're a pagan just playing the game, you know what's going to happen eventually? You're going to get sick of playing the game. Because human beings will get sick of anything. Everything. I don't care how nice the car is, how beautiful the house is, I don't care about any of it. You will get sick of it eventually. Eventually. Because that's human nature. Because we're made to worship, and we're made to worship something that is beautiful and majestic and glorious. And you know what can compare to that? Nothing here. You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. In order to do that, you would have to process them by hand. So you couldn't, you're not building anything, you're not making a press, you have got to do this by hand. Now, would that be time consuming? Yes. But what would it accomplish? And I'll give you a couple answers. One, it makes really, really good oil. The advantage of that is this oil, when it's processed this cleanly and this well, would be basically smokeless. I mean, as much as, that, as much as oil in that day could be smokeless for light, this would be it. That's the one thing. You know what the second thing would be? Christian, your spiritual act of worship. Because for some people in Israel, it's pressing those olives every single day. And let's be honest, you do the same job every day, how good you get at it. You get pretty good. You get pretty fast at it, right? And, and how special is it? It's not anymore. 
And yet, why do they do it? Because God told me to. Because you have the skill, you have the gifting, and this is what God requires from his people. This becomes your offering. This becomes your sacrifice. To do it and to do it well. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generation for the sons of Israel. So, this little light of theirs, they're going to let it shine all night, every night, until Jesus comes back. Well, they didn't know that's how long they were supposed to do it, but you, you get the idea. Why? Why is the light perpetual? Why should it always be lit? I mean, are we doing the Yom Kippur sacrifice at 2 o'clock in the morning? No, so what do we need a light for? Because it's teaching you something about God. One of my favorite funeral verses, believe it or not, this is always a good reminder for families at a graveside, at least I think it is. This comes from Psalm 139, but it's applicable here. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. And if I make my bed in the grave, behold, you're there. If I take to the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will leave me, lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Where's that priest? It's in the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? Well, it's not just that. It's God's house. That for Israel is God's house. That's his tent. You got a tent. God's got a tent. And in God's tent, there is no darkness. Where God is, the light always shines. There's nowhere to hide, nowhere to run. Because it's all there. And this again carries you to your New Testament. John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. We've used this example before. You want to make the darkness go away, what do you do? You light a light, right? Flip a switch, light a candle, light a match, do something. Did you ever have to, like, then go chase the darkness away? Like, did you light the light and it didn't work? <laughs> like, I'm using a silly example. Like, be out in the middle of the night and you light the light. Oh, man, it's, it didn't work. Look, I, the match is burning, but everything's still dark. <laughs> no, it just is. It just does. Why is God not darkness? Because he just simply is goodness and light. There is nowhere to hide in him. There is nowhere to hide from him. He simply is and was and is to come. And by the way, your apostles understood this lesson. You know what they applied it to? Second Peter chapter 1. We have the prophetic word made certain to which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. See, is, is your world a bright place? I don't just mean your world. I mean, is our world a bright place? No. 
The morning star hasn't arisen. Dawn is not here. We walk in darkness, but how do we do it? Go ahead, sing the song. You know you want to. (laughs) But that's important. Why does it shine? Because it is Christ. Why is it good? Because it is from him. Why does it overcome? Because what enemy can defeat him? See, understanding this, excuse me, understanding this and applying it 2,000 years later becomes difficult if you miss what's being taught in the grand scheme of Revelation. By that, I mean the grand scheme of your Bible. But when you understand how all of these things are pointing to who God is and how those things are fully revealed and finalized for humanity in Christ, you've just answered a very important question for your world. Why? You want to see why? You want to understand what's broken in humanity so often? Ask them why. Did you ever do that in history class? Like when you did your world history in high school. I'm serious. I know I'm weird, but I can't be the only weirdo who asked this question. When, you, when, you're, when you're reading through your history books and you're looking at the history of humanity, what's it really a history of? I mean, think about it. Well, it's a history of sin, but I'm talking about from a human perspective. How much time did you spend in your history classes talking about art and literature and music? You predominantly talked about what? Two groups of human beings doing what? Killing each other. Did you ever ask one very important question? Why? So like... So the Assyrians had this great empire, and then the Babylonians rose up to overthrow them. Why? And then the Babylonians took over, and they made the empire even bigger. So the Persians rose up to overthrow the Babylonians. Why? And then the Greeks came along, and the Persians made the empire even bigger. And then Alexander runs through and just conquers everything and makes the empire even bigger. Why? And then the Romans come out of this Iberian Peninsula, the Italian Peninsula, the Iberian Peninsula is Spain and Portugal, sorry, comes out of the Italian Peninsula and they incorporate the Hellenistic worldview of Alexander and the Greeks and they start conquering this and they expand the empire even larger. Why? And then the Huns come out of Mongolia and the, the, I mean, why? Why any of it? We went into Afghanistan to kick out the Taliban, and the Taliban didn't leave. And now we've left, and they're coming back. Why? Who cares? The answer is, you know what? They don't know either. They have no idea. It's all Babel every single day. You remember the punchline of the story of Babel? Let's build this great tower into heaven so that our names would be remembered. So What? Who cares? Well, they do, because what else do they have? What else do they have? See, I don't need history to remember my name. You know why? Because God knows it. I don't need humanity a thousand years from now to sing my praises. You know why? Because I can sing God's. Christ knows me and has loved me and redeemed me. I could not care less what the world thinks of me. Because my why is in God. It is commanded by the Holy Spirit. It is grounded in Christ. And it finds its fulfillment in his kingdom and not my own. That's why this worship matters. It answers the question, what in tarnation am I doing here? And why am I doing it? You want to understand sin? 
Just try to figure out why they're doing it. Because sin doesn't even know. And they don't even know half the time why they're doing it. Because I just need to do something. No, I don't. I need to do what God has commanded. Why? Because that's what matters. That's where the good, the right, and the beautiful is found. And you know where I want to be? I want to be there. And that's what understanding your life as worship unto God changes. Is it doesn't just give you an answer. Is it gives you an answer in the dark world. Because you know what happens to the darkness? It runs away. It hides because it cannot stand before the light. And it gives you a grounding. It gives you a comfort. And it gives you something that you share with this world. It changes who you are, how you live, and why you live. And Christian, it matters because that's how we interact with this world. That's how we bring the gospel to bear is understanding not just how to change their actions. I could care less about changing their actions. I want to change their heart and I need the work of Christ to do it, which means I need to bring the work of Christ to bear on everything, which means I better bring it to bear on everything in my life first. That's how I worship. Let's pray.